another incredible draft podcast. It's draft week. We're ready to roll here. Jonathan Cavoni joining us now from Draft Express. Draft Express does amazing work. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you know about Draft Express, but if you don't dig in, everything from every measurement of every player of every combine to great, incredible draft videos to interviews outside of P3 in Santa Barbara to get the feel of how guys are right now, to mock drafts, to history of drafts. It's just got everything covered. It's really uh, it's kind of the modern, it's better than a magazine. It's, it's, it's the modern magazine, right? Like it's better than what magazine, it used to be in the old days we would order. I actually wrote one many, many years ago, uh, draft magazines. You'd, in the old days you'd go to Sporting News and you'd find who's putting out the draft magazines and you'd, you'd order them and you'd get your shipment. This is like a, a, a living organism that is one of those great magazines that's always being updated. It's fabulous, fabulous work. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time uh, for the Lockdown Jazz listeners and uh, NBA fans all across the country to uh, talk draft today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. Let's go big picture, cliche questions to start, because I think you've got to put it in context. What's your viewpoint of this draft? I really like this draft. It's been a blast covering it. Sometimes by this point in the year, I just, I'm just tired of the crop. I'm ready to move on to the next one. But this is a group that, you know, we keep learning more stuff about. I feel like they keep getting better. They keep challenging us to, you know, consider how good they are, you know, what, what, how, how much they're still going to continue to improve. Um, I think it's a really strong group at the top. And I think this draft really reflects the new trends that we're seeing in the NBA, you know, there's a lot of three-point shooting. There's a lot of length. There's a lot of athleticism. There's shot blocking. There's defense. You know, there's youth. There's experience. There's character. There's really everything for everyone. So if you've got, a, you know, a lottery pick, I think you're in really, really good shape. I think you have a chance to get a really good player. All right, so now you hit on my second cliche question which is with the way the league's going, how are you seeing players being evaluated differently and what skills are you seeing that are suddenly more important than they were maybe five years ago? Well, the easy answer to that is shooting. I mean, we've seen all the stats about, you know, how how records are being broken. Um, Every single record is being broken in terms of three-point attempts and three-point makes. Um, you know, the league is just being played faster. It's more wide open. And, you know, it's just all about shooting now. We're watching the finals now. You know, we, we might get 50, 60 threes being thrown up tonight. And that's just awesome. I mean, it's just so much fun to watch. And it's um, it really kind of, you know, changes our perception of, you know, how, you know, different positional players are supposed to be used. You know, what is a center? What is a big man? What is a power forward? What is a point guard? And it's just awesome. You know, I mean, it, 10 years ago, uh, you know, a center had to be seven feet tall. He had to be able to score with his back to the basket. And now, you know, is there center Draymond Green? He's 6'6". Or Tristan Thompson, you know, I mean, it's, um, is it LeBron James, you know? So it's, it's 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 a lot of fun. I think uh, basketball is evolving, and it's it's really fun to be in the middle of it right now. Well, to your point, I was reading your Stanley Johnson stuff last night. Uh, with you know, he's just so everyone knows. And in fairness to Jonathan, we're recording this on June fourteenth. I don't think it's going to drop 
uh, on Locked on Jazz. It may lo- drop earlier on Draft Express, but I don't think it's going to drop on Locked on Jazz till the 22nd. So seven days is going to pass here between, and there's things that could have changed, right? So just anyone who's listening to this, uh, there's your warning. If we say something, you're like, that's not true anymore. That's not Jonathan's fault. That's my fault. Uh, so just hate on me and, and love Jonathan. Uh, but I was reading Stanley Johnson's piece, and I think somewhere one of your guys wrote that he could guard three positions, which is true. But then I tried to figure out which three. <laughs> like, that's how crazy the NBA is, right? Like, for a brief moment, I was like, he weighs 242. He could, I know he's only 6'5", but maybe he can guard the five. <laughs> like, that's how crazy interchangeable positions have become. Oh, no, no doubt about it. You know, Stanley Johnson started at the two in, in college for Arizona. And I think we're going to see something similar to what, you know, the kind of transformation that Harrison Barnes underwent. I mean, he played the two and the three at North Carolina. And the entire time we were wondering, how much better would this guy be if he played the four in college? I mean, he doesn't have, he's big and strong enough and long enough to guard any four in college basketball. Why don't they just try him there? You know, but Roy Williams played, you know, you had Tyler Zeller and John Henson, so there was really no room at the four. And I kind of wondered the same thing this year with Stanley Johnson. What would have happened if he would have played the four? How much better of a year would he have had with that much more space to operate? And I think we're going to see that in the NBA uh, much more than we did in college. Well, that's interesting. That's a really interesting thought on Stanley Johnson. I've been looking at him trying to figure out how he fits the 2-3. You're right, but he's a 3-4 comes off your bench and if the other and he can play your like if from a jazz standpoint he goes and plays your four with Rudy or Derek you've got rim protection and then versatility across the board I mean Draymond Green is six five and three quarters with a seven one wingspan and coming out of college as a senior he was 236 pounds Stanley Johnson as an 18 year old measured 242 pounds six eleven and a half wingspan this guy is you know, he might play some five the way Draymond Green did. I, I really think it's possible with a creative coach in a, in a small lineup. You know, he's definitely strong enough to do it. It's interesting. I was at a draft workout uh, for the Jazz. Trey Lyles and Jonathan Holmes were both at the workout. Both of them played three in college, will be fours in the pros. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, I mean, I, you wonder something. I mean, Kentucky was so loaded in the front court that you understand why Lyles had to play the five. And the same, I guess, can be said for Texas. But I really think that Lyles is a center in the NBA. You know, he's 6'10", 7'1 wingspan, 241 pounds. This guy is going to be a stretch five in the NBA. And Jonathan Holmes, you know, he moved to the four during the free draft process. And, you know, lo and behold, his, his stock is just skyrocketed because you just can't find that 6'9 guy that can, you know, is strong enough to guard the post, but versatile enough to step outside, to put the ball on the floor, and, and, and to make threes, you know, kind of in that Patrick Patterson mode. There just aren't enough of them to go around. And he's really starting to get looks in the end of the first round when if you looked at, you know, at – People with mock drafts in, in, in April and March, he was nowhere to be found. It's interesting. Uh, I think Lyles is Patrick Patterson. Could be. Yeah, no, definitely definitely could be. Um, what, we'll see. I mean, he, he's he got a long ways to go with a three-point shooting. I mean, but um, 
I could. Uh, I think he's. I think he's a more versatile guy coming out of college than than Patterson. Well, Patterson was really like a back to basket player um, at Kentucky. So you know, I, I think Lyles. I'm, from what I'm hearing, he might go higher than where we have him, and we have him at 15. I could really see him getting drafted ahead of the Jazz, even at 12. The the mock drafts feel more in flux. Again, we're recording on June 14th, than I've ever felt them 14 days before a draft. So now, frankly, anything we hear, by the time we drop this, everybody will be lying. So (laughs) I'm not sure that this will be an untrue statement. Do you feel that same concept, that there seems to be somebody like Stanley Johnson who could go as high as, I guess, 8 and probably as low as 12 or 14? You've got guys as Lyles who could go as high as whatever you're saying compared to could go 16. Does it feel more in flux to you than usual? I feel like it's in flux every year, honestly. Um, you know, you look at, like, let's say the 2013 draft. We had no idea. You know, Anthony Bennett was going one, that Noel was going six. I mean, we all had Max Lamore in the top three the entire year. Um you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, who, who even had heard about Giannis out of Tacumbo before, you know, I went to Greece in, in February, you know, and, and, and started talking about him. It's, um, I, I really think every year that teams, you know, they go into their draft room and, and, and they kind of have an open mind. And uh, talking to different teams, they tell me, you know, a lot of them I'm, I'm very close to, they say, Jonathan, I wish I could tell you who we're going to draft right now, but we have absolutely no idea. There's so much disagreement in our own room about how to rank the top five, the top 10, the top 20, the top 30. It's going to really come down to to the last minute. So we're going to, you know, just collect as much information as we can in workouts and, you know, psychological reports and our analytics guys and background research. And we're going to come to a decision probably the day of the draft, but before that, you know, I don't know. I don't know how to make a mock draft right now. They don't know who, who their buddies are going to pick around the league. So, I, I, people think, oh, everybody's lying to each other. I just really think it's just people haven't decided yet. Well, I had a very interesting moment, you know, where you're and where I'm talking to somebody, and you know, I act like I know what I'm talking about, and they just kind of looked at me and were like, "David, there's 12 days still." you have no idea how much stuff happens in the next 12 days. I was like, oh, okay, never mind. The way that was said to me was really clear. Like, I don't get that. To your point, how much stuff takes place every day in this process uh, of information that's acquired or points of view or film study or things. It's such a fluid, fluid process. Where, if we look back over the years with all of your work, where do you think most mistakes are made? You know, I don't know that considering as many the many variables that there are in the draft, I'm surprised that a lot more mistakes aren't made, really. You know, I, mean, I, I think that the problem that a lot of the teams at the top run into is that they're so bad and they have such a long ways to go that they kind of discount the guys that are just really solid, you know, that they say, well, this guy is going to be a starter in the NBA, fine. I want more than that. I want an all-star. I want, you know, a game changer. I mean, I, I want, you know, a, a real franchise piece. And 
you just don't get that in most drafts. There aren't really more than two or three of them. So I think that that's where some mistakes are made is that teams just kind of swing for the fences wildly instead of just, you know, get, settling for a single or a double. It's Miles Turner or Trey Lyles. It's Kelly Oubre or Sam Decker, right? That concept? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, yeah. It, I don't know what you think of each one. So, I mean, you I could really be – I think Miles Turner. I guess Miles Turner and Kelly Oubre. You're drafting the body, the measurements, with the hope that it comes together. Trey Lyles, to me, who I really like in this draft, I think is very blasé. I really like him a lot. So make sure that's clear. I think he's one skill away from being a very good NBA player. Um, he may or may not get that three point shot, but um, and I think that Sam Decker's like just a very solid player he'll be he'll be a 10-year pro never an all-star maybe not even a starter Kelly Oubre and Miles Turner both have God has given them a gift of all-star bodies now the question is do they get all-star games I I agree with you on Oubre I I think that Miles Turner to me he's you know a solid double as well just because he's not particularly athletic and so I, I don't see him developing into this you know, all-star talent. But, you know, what he has is, you know, like you said, he's got a, a 7-4 wingspan. He's got a 9-4 standing reach. He's got a, a good-looking shot. It doesn't go in very much right now, but it's he's got good mechanics. He's going to be able to develop into a solid shooter. He made almost 85% of his free throws. And then he's got good instincts and timing. He's a shot blocker. And on top of that, he's a really, really good kid. He's a worker. He's got a great attitude. He's come from a good family, strong background. So you know he's going to, you know, whatever potential he has, he's going to maximize that. So, But I don't see him being, you know, a franchise player. But just there just aren't that many seven-footers in that mold, which is why, you know, you might see him getting drafted in the top ten because you just, it's really hard to acquire those guys. I'm going to take a curveball here. You just brought it up, and it just you're the guy who probably knows this better than anyone. This is a little bit of a different question. Sorry, Jonathan, for slight, you know. Bender, uh, two years ago, the Wall Street Journal wrote a fascinating article about how African-American NBA players were from two-parent houses at a rate incredibly higher than the average African-American male. Uh, and it was this whole article that, hey, the Doug Wrens of the world, who most people don't remember, but he was the number one high school player in the country out of Seattle, Washington, and he was just from a disastrous background, just there's two, and he went to UConn and got in all sorts of trouble. That there's too many pitfalls for that kid. That kid who doesn't have the background for him to be able to get through high school, get through college, get through the whole process, actually get to the NBA. It's just it, it, that background ends up catching up to him, no fault of his own, but just the reality. Whereas the Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, good background kids, and we see it with the Jazz. Most of our kids have have re, two parent houses, Alec Burks, etc. Are you finding, now that I mention that, does that ring, I'm sure you haven't studied it, but it was a really fascinating piece. Does that ring true to you as I suddenly say that to you and you think about this, the backgrounds you're getting on each of these guys? You know these players as well as anyone. That's why I ask you. I think to an extent character matters and that the cream rises to the top. But I think that once we, we get to you know June 14th, 11 days before the draft, I think that the pool has been narrowed down so much that that might not be as important a factor as, you know, we know what the pool is like now, and now we're dealing with a really, really small sample size of guys. And I think if you would look at, 
you know, you look at Willie Colley Stein, his background is certainly not that. Um, you know, it's actually exactly the opposite. I, I don't think that that's going to play that big of a role in whether he's successful as an NBA player or not, you know. Um, so I think you see, even you look through this draft, uh, there's a lot of different backgrounds. But I do think that it matters to get to this point where we're at right now. But from here on out, I think that there is a lot more factors that are going to come into play. Probably well said. Very, 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 very well said. Who is the player that you right now like more than everyone else? Well, we talked about Jonathan Holmes, you know, him starting the draft process, you know, pretty much outside of everybody's board. Um, you know, I would I would take him solidly in the first round. I don't know if he's going to go in the first round, so that's probably one guy. I think Rondé House-Jefferson is another one. You know, I, I think that he's the guy that we talked about. Teams are looking for more than him. You know, they say, okay, he's going to be a phenomenal defender, maybe the best defender on our team. He's going to be a team player. He's such a positive guy. He's going to be a good cutter. He's going to be a ball mover. Um, he's going to be a great role player. But we want more than that in the lottery. And I think that a lot of the guys that are going to go in the lottery, four or five of them traditionally, are going to be bust. They were going to wonder, hey, why did Rondé House Jefferson go higher? Why did he go 23 or whatever? Uh, and so that's – I think when we look back at the draft, we're going to say he should have gone – you know, 10 to 12 spots higher than he actually went. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is the phrase that I hate the most in the NBA right now, in the draft, every year. He's too high at 14. No. If he's good, that's fine. Like, I always hear that. I I hate that phrase. Frankly, I heard it for about, you know, I think it was probably said about Rudy Gobert. Like, oh, you can't take him at 14. We'll, We'll get him at 20. Too high at 14. I don't know if the Jazz ever said that, but just the idea, right? Like, we knew we liked him. We knew we wanted him. We ended up trading 14 and 22 that year and then buying the pick from Denver. But I think there was this feeling like, oh, well, you can't take him at 14. It's too high for 14. Why? He, if you draft him at 14, it'd still be one of the most incredible draft picks of all time. Like, I feel, and obviously he hit the, he's hit the jackpot. But I always hear that, like, from all across the league. Like, on Ronnie Hollis Jefferson, that would be the phrase right now. Oh, uh, he's too high at 14. To your point, why? Because he'll just be a serviceable player? That's a good 14th pick. Right, you just we don't we're not taking into account how many of these guys are not going to pan out, you know, and we don't know which one it is. I wish I could tell you right now which one of the guys that are going to get drafted ahead of Rondé are definitely not going to pan out. And I have some ideas about it, but you know, when it comes to guys like Gobert, I think we just have too much information. I think is the problem. You know, I, I really wonder if Rudy Gobert did not come to the NBA Combine in Chicago would he have been drafted that low? He did so many workouts, and people just saw him way too much, and they said, well, this guy, is, he's just not strong enough. He's not tough enough. Uh, you know, he's just too much of a project. You know, there's kind of a thing against French players, NBA scouts, you know, don't really like French players for the most part. And I just remember, like, the amount of negativity there was. I mean, he started the year, uh, like, top five on my draft board. And it's shocking that he ended up dropping that low. And I just think that overexposure is what is what happens to a lot of these guys. All right, you just alluded to it, so let me jump into it. If you look back, I haven't updated my numbers in the recent years. These numbers are a little old for uh, just in fairness. I've got about three more years that I can probably update. Um, but if you look back over 
from about 97 to 2009 about. Um, so it's a 13-year span. Uh, after the 11th pick of the draft, uh, 11% become starters. 40% become rotation players, and 49% of players never make a regular rotation in the NBA after the 11th pick to, in the first round. Just first-round picks. Like that's a, that's a stunning number to me that every other pick after 11 is probably not going to have an impact. Which guys are on your highest, eh, I don't see it, they're pro- that, that's not going to pan out after in, that they're in that range of this draft right now? Let's, I would like to have this conversation the day after the draft. It's such a sensitive time right now. I wish I could speak a little bit more freely, but I know that all hell would break loose if I – yeah, I think people that really follow the website know exactly how I feel. You know, you read between the lines, but I'm just not in position to, to speak as freely as I'd like to. I mean, I think in March, April, yeah, no problem. If you listen to my podcast, I think you would know. But right now, I just ten days before the draft. It's just too sensitive of a period for me to just go and just absolutely trash someone and say this guy is going to be a bust 100. percent Which let's flip it around. Which guys do you think have the? So if it's 11, percent there's two or three guys that are projected right now, 11 and below. They're going to be starters. Who do you feel most comfortable that you believe are going to be starters? Well, if Frank Kaminsky goes outside of that 11, which is there's a, a decent chance, I think he's the steal of the draft. Uh, I, I haven't understood why he hasn't picked up more momentum, you know, considering the direction the NBA is heading in, um, you know, as good of a shooter as he is, good of a ball handler, as good of a passer. The fact that he's a solid defender, um, you know, I think he's going to end up being a major steal for someone outside of that top 11. And the other guy that's kind of falling a little bit right now, people are talking about him as like a mid-20s guy, which I think is a mistake, is Kevon Looney. You know, I mean, he started the year yeah, – he, he actually wasn't on my draft when I started the year. I thought he was kind of a role player. It might take him a year or two. Other people had him, you know, top seven, which I thought was way too high. And what happens with that is kind of similar to Gobert is there's a backlash. You know, people say, this guy is not top seven. Everybody's crazy. And then the opposite effect happens. He drops to 27, and then all of a sudden he's just a steal because he really should have gone, you know, around 12, you know, 17, somewhere in that range. What is your feeling on – there used to be the phrase that someone had to have the OS skill. You know, the phrase, the skill that made the opponent when preparing for a game say, oh, blank. Then there's kind of a feel now that we have this, I don't know if Stanley Johnson fits this, but kind of the jack-of-all-trade guys, right? Like this interchangeable position, multiple skilled. What's your feeling of where we are right now? Do we need the OS? Does a guy need the OS skill, that singular skill that makes him an NBA player still? Because that was always kind of the way you looked at drafts. Like, what can, what's his NBA skill, or do you feel it's more wide-ranging? I think it really depends, you know. I mean, there are 30 teams in the NBA. There are 450 roster spots. I think that there's room for, for everything, honestly. And it really depends on where you're picked, what your role is going to be. You know, we see tons of guys who – you drafted too high or, you know, even in the second round, don't make it on, on their first team, move to a, another spot. You know, you look at like a Damari Carroll, for example, 
Um, you know, and guys also get better um, as they move along their career. Some guys get better, some guys don't, you know, and that's the hardest part to predict about the draft is that, you know, you look at like a Paul Millsap, for example, you know, he goes in the middle of the second round because he was fat and undersized and unathletic and bombed his workouts because he just didn't care. But then he goes in the mid-second round, and that's a huge wake-up call for him. He loses a ton of weight. He develops a three-point shot, you know, and all the analytics guys are saying, oh, we knew it, you know, but that's just not true. You know, like you, they liked him because he was like a monster rebounder in college, <laughs> and he's actually not that, that great of a rebounder anymore. He's a three-point shooter. So we players change, you know, and that's the, that's the real challenge in projecting the draft. So if we, I think that that's where the psychological reports, you know, that's where – um, you know, the character, the background, that's where all that comes into play a lot more than just watching them. It's easy to watch a guy play and say he's good at this or he's bad at that. The real question is, what is he going to be like three to five years from now? That's a good point. What's your thought on Moutier versus Russell? You know, Moutier is interesting because he's got he's got such little momentum right now. You know, came back from China. Um, he's you know, he's not having very good workouts. He's not in very good shape. Um, he's not shooting the ball well. And, you know, so I, I want, I think that he's going to slip a little bit in the draft, but I think if he slips too far, I think it's going to be a mistake. I still think he's going to be a good player. He's kind of going against the grain of what, you know, the NBA wants right now in terms of either you're a freak athlete or you're a phenomenal shooter He's neither of those two. So I think Russell has the advantage at this point just because he's he's a better shooter and he's probably, you know, a better passer too. He's just better in pick and roll with his ball handling ability, his creativity. So I think Russell has the advantage not just because of the way that the NBA game is going. But if you look at all a lot of these teams that are going to pick in the top six or seven, they don't really play that, you know, that style of basketball we're seeing in the playoffs. You know, maybe that's why they're not – you know, in that, in what's why they didn't make the playoffs. Like the Knicks, you know, the Timberwolves, the Lakers, the Kings, you know, they don't really play that style that we're seeing. So a guy like Moody can maybe fit in better than he would be able to on like a Golden State or a Cleveland. Jonathan, let me throw you a scenario that a front office guy threw me the other day. Tell me what you think of this. So Moutier gets to six. That's not a qu- crazy concept at all, right? Like Sacramento at six very well has Moutier on the board. And Vlade Divac has, right yeah. right, has his first ever draft and is suddenly confronted with the concept of drafting a player he's never seen before. Okay? And passes on Moutier. When does he stop? Denver has Ty Lawson. Detroit has Reggie Jackson. The Hornets have Kemba Walker. Do the Heat stop him at 10? Do the Pacers stop him at 11 with George Hill? Do the Pacers like Cameron Payne better anyway? Do the Jazz with Dante Exum and Trey Burke stop him? Does Phoenix stop him at 13 with Brandon Knight and Eric Bledsoe? Does Oklahoma City stop him at 14 with Russell Westbrook? Does Atlanta stop him at 15 with Jeff? Like, when does he stop? I think, you know, we're talking about how mistakes are made, and this is a great example. 
You know, who cares who you have on your roster right now if a guy that you think is a superior talent is on the board, you take him. And I think that the guys in Denver are smart enough to realize that. Um, you know, some of this is going to come down to how Moody plays these next 10 days. You know, is his agent going to swallow his pride and realize, you know, my guy is not going in the top four. You know, I'm going to have to expand my range, go do some workouts outside of the top four and try to find a floor and just be happy with where I go. And that's one of the hardest things there is for an agent to do is, you know, realize and play the game. Okay, the, you know, the ground underneath me isn't as solid as I once thought. So, but, you know, to answer your question, I'm pretty confident that he's going to go seven, uh, you know, Ty Lawson and Denver, like the relationship there isn't on very good standing. And so taking Moutier, they could very, first of all, they can play together. I mean, Moutier is six, five, he's strong. He's got like six, nine, six, 10 wingspan. He's going to be fine guarding twos. And a lot of teams play with two point guards anyway. So I think that they can play together. Ty Lawson can shoot. And so, and Moutier, he's 19 years old. He's not going to come into the NBA ready to play 40 minutes a game. So I don't think he falls past Denver at seven. Uh, Towns, Okafor, Przinga, who's an all-star first? Russell, count Russell in there. Who's an all-star first? Towns, no question. Towns, is, to me, is the number one talent in this draft, and it's not even close. Amen. Um, I didn't necessarily feel that way during the season, but just going and watching him work out. I usually don't do this because I'm not a big workout guy. The one exception for me in the past was with Paul George, where I was like, I was kind of lukewarm on Paul George just because he was kind of an underachiever in college. And then I went and watched him work out, and I was like, holy crap, this guy is unbelievable. And I just completely did a 180 on him. And Towns, I already, really liked Towns already before. It wasn't like I didn't have to do a 180 on him. But going in and watching him work out, it was like, wow. I mean, this guy is unbelievable. I don't see how he fails. I don't see how he's not a multi-time all-star. You know, you, don't, you have to wonder about the teams that are picking there. And, I mean, there's it, – it, things can get screwed up, but I really don't have – I mean, I think Towns is a really, really hard guy to screw up. I'm with you 100%. I think he's fabulous. I think he could win MVP in the league. I think he's – I'm I'm in love with him. I just think he's got everything, and he's better than anyone realizes. And the other thing that jumps out to me is when you watch Kentucky, he's so obviously the best player, and that's with five other NBA players on the floor. No question. All right, so there's usually two All-Stars. We usually, if that's the way it works, actually there's usually numbers say there'll be uh, about one All-Pro every other year in those top five picks, and every year there'll be two All-Stars. So who's the second? Mario Hizonia. Interesting. But is he going top five? He should. You know, I, we all think we have this thing figured out like we talked about, but we really have no clue. And it wouldn't shock me at all if, you know, honestly, I think Hazonia is, a, is, a, is the third best guy in the draft. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if Philly took him or Orlando. I don't know. I mean, then they probably know him pretty well. I mean, their international scout lives in Barcelona. So, like, who knows Mario Hazoni better than him? So, I, I think um, – I don't know where he's going to go, honestly. I mean, listen, Lade Divac, 
if there's anybody he knows, it's Hazonia, and they could really use a small forward. So I, I think Hazonia is going to, you know, people are kind of sleeping on him now because he's still in the playoffs. He hasn't come over for workouts. If he had a workout like uh, Porzingis had in Vegas on Friday, I think he would blow everybody away too. So, I mean, he's that athletic and he's that good of a shooter. And he's 6'8", man. I mean, there's – who doesn't need a player like that right. in the NBA right now? And, I, you know, to question um, – Przingis' workout was so good, I have to ask, who's your second-best player in the draft then? I think Okafor is going to okay. be pretty good. I mean, I, I think that we're all kind of jumping off the bandwagon, but I think Okafor is going to be just fine. I love some of Okafor's quotes recently. Like, what are you guys asking me to do? Like, I won a national championship. I was the number two college player of the year. Like, where are you guys finding this? I, I kind of admire the fact that he's kind of stood up for himself a little bit and said, what, what the heck is going on? All right, I'm going to put you through a fun little game called the Jazz Bracket. I, I created this earlier. It all could change by the time we drop this. But let's pretend that there are eight players on the board for the Jazz. Four of them are wings. Four of them are bigs and so i've created a fun little bracket and i'll see who you uh would take your first round matchup is trey lyles versus miles turner who would you uh take of those two miles turner your second round matchup uh is uh kaminsky versus portis who would you take kaminsky all right uh Oubre against booker who would you take Ubre. Give me some thoughts on him for a second. I really hope that he drops a little bit because he's not going to be this superstar guy that people are making him out to be. But I, I think that if he goes to like somewhere like Oklahoma or Atlanta, something like that, I think he's going to be just like a terrific third or fourth option. He's He's got that great body, long arm. He's got a nice stroke. He's going to be a good defender. I think he needs a little bit of a wake-up call. Um, you know, there are some question marks about him off the court. I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think that he might think he's a little bit better than he actually is. So being around like a Kevin Durant, a Russell Westbrook, you know, being around, seeing what it takes to reach that level, I think could be unbelievable for him. But if he goes too high, if he goes in the top seven or eight, I think it's going to be a real challenge for him to reach his full potential. My negative cop on him is Jeremy Lamb, which is interesting because you just put him on the thunder. Disagree? Where do you disagree with that or agree with that? I mean, he's bigger than Lamb, but, you know, he's got that. There's definitely some similarities there. I don't completely disagree with you, actually. And I, I, I was not a Lamb guy at all. Like if you go back and read our reports, you'll see we were as negative on Lamb as any guy in the draft that year. But – I think it's too early to rule him out. I think that if, let's say, OKC put him on the market right now, they could probably get you know, like a top 20 pick for him because he still has upside and somebody's going to take a chance on him because there's just there aren't any two guards in the league like him, guys with that kind of length and shooting ability. So I think it's too early to close the book on him. And maybe Billy Donovan is the guy that gets it out of him. Do you have a concern on Booker? Because I've heard numerous, and I sometimes wonder watching him, I've been told by scouts in the league I'm wrong on this, to be honest with you. But I watch him, and I'm like, okay, if he can't do anything but shoot, then he's just Anthony Morrow. So he better be able to do something else. Um, do you have a concern on Booker on that? Um, you know, I, I, I kind of share your thoughts. I think that he's a little bit vanilla. Um, I, I don't see 
great, you know, length, athleticism, versatility, ball handling. But listen, you know, like the six six guy that can that's an automatic shooter, I mean, that's valuable in the NBA today. So Maybe he's going to be, you know, maybe he's going to exceed our expectations. And he's 18. He's the youngest guy in the draft. And if you talk to people, the people who like him will, and they have a great argument, they'll say, hey, he just wasn't asked to do anything. Like, you know, I asked somebody thinking that I was promoting R.J. Hunter the other day, saying, hey, what happens if Booker's on Georgia State and Hunter's on Kentucky? How are we thinking about him differently? And this person's response was that we could have actually seen what else Devin Booker could do. And I was like, okay, that's fair. Like, that's a fair, different perspective than I was coming from. I'll buy that. Yeah, but that's where, you know, that's why you don't start watching these guys in college. You know, I mean, this is why I go to the under-16 USA basketball tryouts. This is why I go to watch AAU tournaments, high school tournaments. You know, these guys, they don't, they don't, they're not just born and then they end up in college. You know, there's like a, a pathway that leads them to there. So, you watch Booker in different settings, and, you know, you can form a, a stronger opinion. Well, it's interesting you mention that because I like Trey Lyles, but everybody who talks, the minute I bring it up, a lot of people bring up the Nike Hoop Summit where I guess he wasn't very good. He, no, he wasn't very good at the Hoop Summit, um, but, you know, I, it wasn't the only place that we saw him. I mean, he also played for the Canadian national team a few times. He was on a very visible AAU team. You know, he played for the Space Indy Heat around Greg Oden's team. Um, you know, so we saw him at Adidas Nations. We saw him at the Jordan brand. You know, we, we saw him in a lot of different places. So, um, you know, there's a lot more to go off than just his Kentucky film. What is your take on Lyles? I mean, I think he's kind of vanilla, honestly. I'm not, I'm not that high on him to be honest with you um i think that if he goes in that top 10 top 11 i think it's too high for him yeah no i you know i don't know if you're a football fan i think he's low foot to tupu the whole middle linebacker for the seahawks who just does everything a step faster than everyone else so he covers up for his lack of athleticism but that's a risky belief you know you better be right on that all right sam decker or stanley johnson in the jazz draft bracket stanley johnson all right, we move to the second round of this. Miles Turner or Frank Kaminsky? Frank Kaminsky. So you really you're a bit, you believe in the Kaminsky guy? I like it. Ooh. I'm drinking the Kaminsky Kool Aid, no uh, question. About I like, it. and it, and it's an alliteration, so it's even better. Uh, Ubre or Stanley Johnson? Stanley Johnson. It's pretty interesting. I don't know if the Jazz will get this choice, but if you're drafting 12 in this draft and you are deciding between Stanley Johnson and Frank Kaminsky, this is a that's a good 12th pick, isn't it? No question. I think it's a realistic um, scenario, actually. And even if you're deciding between Turner, Kaminsky, Ubre, and Stanley Johnson, I, I mean, I just this this it's interesting how this 12th pick seems to be more appealing today than I ever thought it would be. I think you're right because there are some guys that have moved up, you know, and, and made it more interesting, you know, like where does campaign go? Does he go ahead of Utah? Where does Devin Booker go? You know, does he go ahead of Utah? And so, you know, both of those, and where does Trey Lyles? I think those three guys could all realistically go ahead of Utah. And then you're looking at like, wow, I mean, is Mario Hizonia there? You know, is Kaminsky there? Is Justice Winslow? I mean, who knows, honestly, like who, who falls? Right, if Devin Booker, I, uh, the way I've done it, if Devin Booker or Cameron Payne go ahead of the Jazz, they get 
I guess it depends a little bit on what Miami does, but I, I think they will have the choice of Kaminsky, Johnson, Lyles. Two of the three are almost guaranteed to be there. Like something weird would happen. Uh, you know, and Turner, actually. Turner was the other. They, they would have their choice of Johnson, Kaminsky, or Turner in all likelihood. Uh, I guess, you know, unless Miami surprises people and takes Kaminsky. I'm not sure I see that, but maybe they could do that. All right, so Kaminsky or Stanley Johnson, Jonathan, where do you go? Kaminsky. He has the jazz. All right, so help me out here. I got. I, I have openly said this. i got to watch him more. By the time this drops, I will have watched him more, so I'll probably have to have made when I, The little I have watched, and I have not watched as much as I need to, I am concerned on Kaminsky for the following reasons. One, the offense was completely built to him, which it won't be in the collegiate level. Two, he, I was surprised how long he held the ball. Because, not to his fault or his detriment, but he was not a ball mover because he was supposed to make the play. And then the third one is I look at his handle, and I don't see that translating. So those are my three concerns. Sell me the other way, Jonathan, on Frank Kaminsky. So we haven't seen – I was looking through my database the other day, and he has a PPR that's better than a lot of the point guards, and it's got a pure point rating. We haven't seen – a 6'9 guy with that pure point rating ever in the last, you know, 15 years. And he's not 6'9", he's 7'1". So that is the reason I think you saw the ball in his hands so much. He is a phenomenal decision maker. A lot of scouts criticize him at times for not shooting enough, that he'll have a good shot available to him and he would pass it up and, and keep running the offense because that's how Wisconsin played. So um, I, I think that you know, I just think everybody in the NBA could use a guy like him. And with Derek Favors and Rudy Gobert, I mean, he, that's the perfect guy to slide right in between them. And he's going to accept the role. And um, I, I think he's going to be really good. I really do. Well, it's a great way to end it, Jonathan. Great work at Draft Express. We appreciate it so much. Oh, I mean, the fans just have to be so thankful to everything you guys do. Uh, I will probably see you in New York. Uh, and I appreciate your time today, and uh, we will be running that time and time again if the Jazz draft Frank Kaminsky on Thursday. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.